So the goal is basically used to use CPUs for everything, right? For a long while. And uh, they have, they're excellent. They're very flexible architectures in digital. And then the field of deep learning started getting traction. And we said, oh, okay, like these matrix algebra that we want to do actually are much more efficient to be done on a GPU instead of a CPU, right? So we did that transition more than a decade ago, I guess, by now. And the reason we did that was, again, to be able to handle more complex deep learning applications for artificial intelligence. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, my guest today is Murat Onan, PhD. Uh, he's a postdoctoral researcher uh, in the Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Uh, he's working on a project where he's creating artificial synapses that are 10,000 times faster than biological ones. So this sounds, uh, I don't know, like it has amazing potential. We'll see. But uh, Murat, thank you for coming. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. Well, tell me about uh, this project. Like, how did it start? And uh, what's your involvement in it? Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, I would say that the broader field that we work in uh, is called as analog deep learning. And uh, the core concept here is to come up with a new type of hardware that can accelerate training of neural networks, right? So basically going back to the problem itself, large-scale AI models are the ones basically that enable us these, you know, next generation applications such as natural language processes, autonomous systems, so on and so forth. But training those models, extremely expensive and uh, energy uh, power intensive, power hungry, right? So the idea is, okay, how do we now come up with a new way that we can keep pushing the boundaries of AI without spending billions of dollars to train each new model or even worse, burning down the entire planet while doing so, right? So there comes where the topic of analog deep learning and the idea there is instead of computing deep learning operations in a conventional digital architecture, such as CPUs, GPUs, so on and so forth, we, we basically use another architecture to do these matrix algebra operations at a much more efficient way and much faster way. So the I started in this field in 2016 as an intern at IBM. And at the time I was working from the software and I was developing algorithms for these new processes. And after that, I went back to my roots. I basically doing a, started doing some architecture work, how to design the processes themselves and so on. And ultimately in my PhD at MIT, I started doing the devices work, which basically led to the publication that you mentioned earlier in the call. So the devices... I would say that, you know, everyone knows, I guess, um, that transistors are the building blocks for digital hardware, right? So these new devices that we made uh, here are basically the building blocks for this new analog hardware. So you can imagine them as the transistors of this new application. And it has been a topic that is highly, highly researched around the world for the last decade or so. You know, we can go into the details of what, but the promise, again, is to basically accelerate the training of large-scale neural networks at a fraction of the energy cost. 
So um, with these synapses, what, what is your model? Are you using a mouse model? Um, is it just in a lab dish and you're not even into a living organism? Like how far along are you with it? Oh, okay. So I, I think we need to step back a little and do some disambiguation. I mean, I, I know quite a few people call these things synapses and that immediately implies biological organisms or in at least biomimetic applications like brain inspired. In, in all clearness, that is not what we are doing. So there is a certain misconception about the, I mean, I wouldn't say actually a misconception, the word analog deep learning, sometimes often also called as neuromorphic computing, which in my opinion is a misnomer, but there is a lot of, there are a lot of different versions of architectures and applications and uh, approaches for some reason being called under the same name. I personally actually would not call these things as synapses because again, you know, naturally that leads to some implications saying that, oh, okay, they are, they are doing what? human brain is doing, or they're at least trying to mimic that in a way. What we are doing is a very efficient matrix algebra machine. And <laughs> maybe on the premise, it sounds less cool. But uh, to be honest with you, the practical implications of an efficient matrix machine is quite a lot more than any type of neuromorphic biomimetic approach that you see uh, these days. Uh, and, you know, there is a very simple reason behind it. Looking at human brain and being impressed is very natural, and it makes perfect sense. But in order to uh, design a system that is after human brain, I mean, we first need to understand what human brain is doing, right? So, and we are quite far away from that. So that's why we can't really go ahead and build new systems that work like brain because we don't understand how the original one works in the first place. So I probably would, would, would say that synapses are probably not the right wording, although we're right in saying it that way because so many people use that terminology. I just think it's a bit confusing. So you're not attempting to recreate or augment any existing brain, but what is the goal of the system? If you create these synapse-like structures, is this going to be used for like neural networks or what would be its purpose? Perfect. Yeah. So the goal is basically, I mean, you know, we used to use CPUs for everything, right? For a long while. And they have, they're excellent. They're very flexible architectures in digital. And then the field of deep learning started getting traction and we said, oh, okay, like these matrix algebra that we want to do actually are much more efficient to be done on a GPU instead of a CPU, right? So we, we did that transition more than a decade ago, I guess, by now. And uh, the reason we did that was, again, uh, to be able to handle more complex deep learning applications for artificial intelligence, right? So now we are hitting basically the limits of GPUs. So then the question becomes, what next? So this basically new architectures that we are working on is, is basically trying to address that problem. They want to become the next generation of GPUs, even though they don't work, you know, similar to how a GPU does, but as a concept wise, their, their purpose is going to be, they want, they, they are, they're promising to become these hardwares, training hardwares. So basically chips that train large scale neural network models, such as, you know, GPT trees of the world or the much more advanced versions that are trying to be realized. They're going to be the ones well, I know that, and, um, that support. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar, 
and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. In the crypto world, they went from regular computers to GPUs to ASICs, like these specialized chips that only did you know, mining for Bitcoin, let's say. So are there any learnings from the crypto world that you've looked at? If not, it's okay, but it just came to mind. I wanted to bring it up. No, that's that's a fair point. I mean, the matrix algebra is indeed, yeah, heavily heavily used in cryptography in general, and therefore cryptocurrency and you know cri- cri- uh, crypto applications themselves. To be completely fair, where these architectures, I mean, can you use an analog machine to do crypto cryptography uh, related applications? M- maybe, but there is a critical point to make here. So these analog machines do not operate at the same scientific resolution the digital ones do, right? So they are more erroneous in their nature. They have different noise terms, so their calculations are imperfect. And uh, And But but just the concept of an application-specific integrated circuit like they've created, is that where you guys are going? Are you just modifying GPUs to make them work better, or are you going for a whole new paradigm that is specific to a particular application you want? Okay, so it has two parts to it. No, we are not trying to modify GPUs. It is it is certainly a whole new paradigm. But as for application-specific part, I wouldn't call it that way because that implies the absence of a general-purpose architecture, right? So GPUs, for example, I would not call them an application-specific IC because, yes, maybe they are quite a lot, uh, quite heavily used in deep learning, but it's not the only place that they are being used. And uh, they are not only being optimized for that particular application, right? So they have a general purpose usage, maybe less than CPUs, but still significantly general purpose. On the other end, some digital ASICs, as you mentioned, some of them basically say, okay, you know, we, we picked our application, we will optimize everything for that and uh, reduce the redundancies and whatnot. But when you do that, targeting the next application, well, you basically need to start again. So these analog machines that we are working is a general purpose approach. So it is much more similar to GPUs from that point on, but how they work is entirely different. So it is not really like an iterative step from a GPU. It is a complete new paradigm, as you put it earlier. Okay, that makes sense. Um, What is it about GPUs that made them better and faster for calculation? I don't know if you can speak to that, but maybe it sheds light on where things need to go next. Yeah, absolutely. So the CPUs... First of all, like we know, we need to start from what CPUs used to do. In order to in order to have a as general purpose of a machine as CPU, you basically need a lot of redundancies, right? You need in order to create flexibility, you need to create, define things in a very in order to do these flexible way. That 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 inevitably will cause in uh, redundancies. There is no way around it. So GPU said, okay, we will only do these uh, matrix operations, multiply, accumulate type of operations. So basically a subset of what a CPU can do, but we will do it in a much more efficient manner. And that worked fantastically for deep learning as well as, you know, ray tracing, what they were originally being doing for graphic processing, right? It works fantastically for that because now they're doing a simple operation in a much more efficient way rather than being able to do a complicated operation, but at a much more redundant, it's a lot of redundancies on top. So that was the key change from a CPU to a GPU. They were massively parallel, which in order to get that there, they were basically saying, okay, we will have tiny processes and replicate so many of them. And therefore, whenever a task comes in, we will divide the load to all of them and then collect it back. So that was the core idea behind the GPU. 
from GPU to what we are doing, basically we are keeping all the parallelism. So we are keeping this idea of having many cores dividing the workload such that we can have a hard throughput. But what we are changing now is the unit core. So instead of a GPU's core, we are changing that with a new device type that makes it a lot more efficient and uh, giving the same throughput with at least two orders of magnitude higher energy efficiency. So are you structuring these new computers to not only be in parallel, but to literally, let's say, be a placeholder for an X layer, you know, AI type system or deep or, you know, machine learning type system? Like what, what can you say about the structure that will make it work faster and make it work better? What are the elements that would make it do so and why? Yeah, so the the basically the deep benefits of a GPU over uh, the other applications were coming from the high parallelism. If you can basically run all of the operations in parallel, the more parallel units you have, the faster that you will go, right? So uh, that that is that is certain. The uh, trade-off of that for a GPU is that as you increase the number of cores that you have, you become very very power hungry, right? So what we are offering now is the exact same parallelism at a lot cheaper. So the, the each unit is consuming a lot less. So if you want to talk, compare them in speed-wise, then you can say, okay, I'm going to have the same power budget, right? And then when you have the same power budget, basically now you can afford to have many more cores of the analog compared to the limited number of cores of a GPU. So then you, if you're running on the same power, you will basically be having two orders of magnitude of higher throughput benefits or conversely, if you want to say, oh, no, I want to do the same operation at the same speed, then you will have 100 times fast, 100 times a higher energy efficiency. So it's a normalized unit I think we should look for here, which is operations per seconds per watt or ops per watt, which is a uh, you know, commonly used metric in, in, the, in the field of digital or analog deep learning hardware or matrix algebra hardware in general. But yeah, the, the key idea is we are basically replacing the building block of a GPU with a much more efficient one. So if you want to get yeah. the same speed, it's going to be much more efficient or vice versa. That depends on how you want to deploy it. What, what are some of the numbers involved? You said like operations per watt. So what are the what is the ballpark of the numbers that we're seeing for a GPU versus your architecture? Well, uh, first of all, there are there are quite many GPU offerings. Uh, like so, it, it's going to be I will I will use some normalized metrics, but uh, they will be ballpark numbers more than more than more than anything, right? So the most of the GPUs, I think what we are seeing is around a teraops per watt, the advanced ones that we are seeing, and some of them are approaching a little higher than that. As far as I recall, NVIDIA's H100 is supposed to be, I think, 3.8 or 3 teraops per watt. There are some other hardware by, you know, NVIDIA is not the only player after all in this. For them, I think they can a little closer to 10 teraops per watt kind of metrics. But uh, for an analog hardware, even though we do not yet have a full system, what we are projecting to get is uh, hundreds of teraops per hardware, potentially all the way up to 1,000 teraops per watt, which means a uh, petaops per watt. So just to basically repeat, the digital seems to be getting limited by this 10 tops per watt line, whereas analog is aiming towards a 1,000 tops per watt. So that's the two order of magnitude that I was alluding to earlier. Yeah, I, I don't know if this is a ridiculous idea, but... Has anyone tried to make a, a computer chip where the inputs maybe are, I don't know, you know, 10 volts and it goes through X number of transistors and then the parasitic waste current then powers the next set and the next set, and the next set. So you, you have to put in, let's say, more energy to the chip, but you're using the waste energy or the excess energy, if possible, 
to power like lower and lower levels of uh, transistors that need less voltage to turn on. Would that be anything that could be a design element in a, in a circuit? I mean, it's certainly not a conventional way to design an architecture. Uh, that much I can tell. Can it be done? I guess it's a different question, but I'm not aware of any architecture that is designed in a way that you just described. Yeah, just a thought occurred, so I figured I'd tell you and see if it was ridiculous or maybe it's something you could chew on later and, and think about. I don't know if it's useful. So. Yeah, I mean, okay. uh, new, new ideas, are, I guess, always are unconventional, right? So uh, who knows? But as I said, I'm not familiar with head approaches. Okay. Well, how are you guys getting such efficiencies? You know, tera operate, you know, trillions of operations per watt. Now you want to go to hopefully quadrillions or you know, quintillions. But how do you do that? How is the efficiency increased? What is it? You know, unless it's proprietary, I understand you can't say, but what can you say about how it becomes so much more efficient? Yeah, no, I, I cannot get anything to talk about it. So I think, again, it needs to be done in comparison to how digital works, and then it makes a lot more sense to understand what analog is doing better. So uh, when you do any of these matrix algebra in digital, I mean, there, there, there are, there are two, two key parts to it, I would say. First of all, whenever you do a matrix algebra creation in a digital processor, what you need to do is you need to go to the memory, locate the matrices, bring them to the processor, do the processing, and then write them back. And uh, this uh, memory processor communication is consumes very significant amount of energy and latency when you are dealing with large-scale matrices, right? And it is often called as the memory wall or the von Neumann bottleneck. So that's the first part that analog don't suffer from because the, we basically uh, process things in memory. So the physical space where the weights are stored and the processing is done, identical. Therefore, you don't need to carry these uh, matrices around. So that's the first part. The, admittedly, there are other approaches that do in-memory compute as well. So analog is not the only one. What, what is particularly different when you go to an analog machine is instead of representing things in digital, you know, in binary values and then doing, doing matrix algebra in a way through these logic gates, uh, that has a computational complexity of O and Q, which means uh, if, you have, if you want to do the same, same operation with a 10 times larger matrix, you need to do 1,000 times as many operations and if you are dealing with a serial processor, such as a CPU, that's going to take 1,000 times as longer. So the way that people reduce that first was to use a parallel architecture, as I was saying earlier, like a GPU, which then, okay, then you can do it in ON computational complexity. So then the problem becomes, okay, each processing element of a GPU, how much energy it is using, right? So if, for example, the earlier example I gave from uh, NVIDIA, those high-end GPUs comprise 80, 80 billion, no, eight, let, let me think one second. Let's take that out. I don't remember the exact number, but the each basically each core of a GPU comprises many hundreds of transistors, right? So then that in its on its own, the unit element that you have is consuming a lot of power. Instead, in, in an analog machine, what you do is you use intrinsic physical phenomena in order to compute compute some of the matrix algebra that you're after. For example, the simplest ones to explain, and actually this is an old idea, that in order to do multiplication, you can rely on Ohm's law. And in order to get to accumulation, you can rely on Kirchhoff's law. And as I said, this idea goes back all the way to early 60s. But now there are also other approaches that are quite a bit more sophisticated and a bit difficult to explain without, without visuals. Uh, is uh, you can also do now matrix outer products, which has been impossible to do before in a fully parallel manner in, with high energy efficiency, right? And uh, in the end, unit operations that you do on an analog machine, since it relies on physical properties rather than 
complex representations and forcing logic case to work with those is going to become a lot more efficient. So that is the key idea. You are basically relying on physics, in our case, electronics, in some case, light to make things a lot more efficient. Yeah. What, I mean, do you have working models and are there particular kinds of applications that these work better for versus others? Are there certain kinds of computations that are most amenable to the model you're working on? So the, I mean, I have personally been attacking this problem from two sides. Uh, on one end, I'm developing these devices, uh, which are the topic of the publication that you were mentioning earlier. Uh, and on the other end, uh, we are doing simulated studies to understand what a full system would look like and what would be its performance benefits and what would, how accurate it would train a neural network, how fast would it train a neural network, how much energy it would train it for. And it, in what, what we are seeing is basically the larger the neural networks that you want to train gets, the better these architectures become. So the performance advantage that you have over digital basically increases for increasing complexities of AI models, which is a good sign for sure. But the, do we already have a chip, a processor that is fully packaged that already does run these things? And then we can ben benchmark it against the GPU? No, we are not there yet. I, I think the field, I mean, the field is not there yet. Uh, it's a relatively young field, but the, and the critical problem before getting there was you need to make a device that is readily integrable to silicon, right? Because at the end of the day, you need to manufacture these things and uh, you need to have a device that also satisfies a long list of properties such that when you build a system with them, they work the way that they are, they are supposed to, right? And uh, that has been the key limitation of this field over the last decade. We did not have the unit devices. And therefore, we couldn't build these uh, processes. Uh, I mean, we had these projections all the time, but we couldn't actually build them to realize these benefits. So that's what we changed basically with this paper. Uh, we found this unit element that shows uh, ideal characteristics, and it is also silicon integrable. So now we are working basically to our way to advance them, to build the system level, and then 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 go to the head to head with the GPUs. Oh, so how long is the uh, the path before you? Is, do you still have a lot to go or do you have a working model or, you know, when are you going to be able to test this side by side? At a small scale, I would say uh, things can happen in a year or two, but uh, like that would be a toy, toy model, basically. It would not be uh, as groundbreaking as it's supposed to be. But uh, realistically speaking, probably within five to six years, we should be able to have full scale systems uh, that are already showing all of these performance benefits against the digital. And uh, it's actually a very good timeline because if you if you look around the AI hardware space, most people will tell you that there is probably a three to five more years of a runway with uh, existing uh, digital architectures in the sense that we can use them to continue advancing AI without hitting the roadblocks, without get them getting too much cost prohibitive and so on. But um, the after that, we certainly need to change the change the paradigm somehow. And uh, this is definitely one of the leading uh, contenders to 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 do that replacement, such that we can continue pushing these boundaries. And uh, the timeline, even though it, on premise, I guess it sounds like a long time, five years still, but uh, I would say that it's a it's a good timing for this technology uh, to become reality because that's exactly when we would need them the most anyway. So, what what will you be able to do if your uh, architecture works? and you know works as you intend to like what kind of things will open up and be able to be done now yeah like basically like i think i i think you would know and it's i think it's 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 quite popular gpt3 right uh, and uh, 
uh, although we don't know the exact numbers, uh, some people estimate that it costs around fifteen uh, million dollars uh, to to train that kind of neural network. And uh, there have been some estimates suggesting that by 2025, uh, training the state-of-the-art neural network in that year is going to cost around one billion dollars, right? And uh, the, the, uh, the same estimation also suggests that that training that network is going to consume higher power than the entire New York City. So these are dire uh, estimations; like they are, they are pretty terrifying. So if you have the architectures that we have, basically it is first of all it's going to cost around hundred times cheaper than uh, than one billion. So then you would be able to continue advancing these models because I think, as you would appreciate. If it becomes uh, if the if the price tag of each training each new neural network becomes one billion dollars, that would simply mean that they are cost prohibitive there, right? Uh, at least for everyone, maybe except for one monopoly company. I know that a lot of data is needed to train these networks. So is it a question of that? Uh, is the data the cost, or is it how many times the network has to run in order to train? Like, why the are there savings? Okay. The, the, definitely the latter. So the data is definitely going to go up. Uh, that's that's for sure. The network sizes are increasing significantly. And therefore, passing more amount of data through a longer path is consuming a, a lot more energy. So the, if you actually look at the trends of how much compute we need uh, to advance AI, it's doubling every two months, right? So the amount of computations we need to train, the next state-of-the-art AI network is, is doubling every two months. So that's that's a very steep increase. And then the silicon, the advancement in silicon scale, scaling, you know, what is conventional no, known as the Moore's law and its its extensions, that's not enough anymore to keep this uh, this trend going, right? So and what's going to happen is at some point you can't double every two months because that's just simply too expensive. Uh, and then you will basically need to say, okay, you know, we are not having these nice AI applications that we wanted to have because we just simply can't afford it. Right, so the, the the advancements in the AI is going to slow down as a result of that, unless we've come up with a new solution. So yeah. that that's that, that's that's basically the key. Uh, the in order to keep pushing the new applications, like for example, if you want self-driving cars, right, the, we definitely need uh, better hardware in order to be able to train these models, and also in order to train uh, to to inference to do inference with these models. But that's a separate topic. I don't want to get into that right now, but both of them, both of the hardware needs to definitely become uh, a lot more powerful such that we can support these uh, novel applications. Otherwise, we are going to hit hit these roadblocks. That is the exact promise of these uh, analog architectures to continue the runway, right? So what kind of problems right now are uneconomical or unsolvable? And what kind of problems do you think you'll be able to solve if your system comes online? Are there any famous ones that, Again, just can't be solved right now with the level of technology we have. Yeah, I mean, I think you can you can even see it with the natural language processes that are that have become quite famous, right? The when GPT three came out in order to do natural language processing, which basically means uh, it inputs text queries as input and it outputs answers in text form again. People were super excited, you know, uh, which makes me make sense because it was super exciting. But advancements upon that became quite tricky. So training basically GPT-4, like you, if you look at the advancement that OpenAI did from GPT-2 to GPT-3, taking another stride of the same magnitude to train GPT-4, that's, that's extremely expensive. So that hasn't happened yet. Or at least maybe maybe there it's under development, but at least it's not publicly available. And uh, instead of doing that kind of thing, what people started doing is, okay, 
we can't train even larger neural networks anymore because of these hardware issues that I mentioned. Why not we just use the same model, but uh, tweak it for different applications? They started calling these foundation models. Basically, there exists a trained, very large scale model. In order to attract a new application field, they try to, instead of doing it out of scratch, they use it as a starting point and just tweak it. And it certainly does have some merits. I think it's an exciting field in its own regard, but you can, you can also sense that this came out of uh, necessity, right? Uh, if we could continue training larger scale models, most people project that we would be able to uh, resolve a lot more complicated AI tasks at end. And this might be in drug discovery. This might be in you know, a finance world. This might be in quite, quite a lot of fields. I mean, it's uh, image recognition, natural language processing. These are, of course, the widely known ones. But there are so many problems. AI can help us unlock more, much better solutions. But we can't train them because we simply don't have the hardware to be able to run these operations without them costing a lot of money. And we are always speaking of money, which makes sense, by the way. You know, at the end of the day, most of these are businesses. But there is also this other side of this thing, which is the environmental costs that are occurring. Right? The the if it is indeed, if this estimation is indeed right. And if, if indeed it, by 2025, this, these networks are going to cost more than new, consume more energy than New York City, that's insane, right? Uh, like at that point, yes, AI maybe is helping us in, in, in some regards, but at the same time, it's also destroying the entire world, right? I mean, I don't want to sound alarming, but uh, the energy costs that, that go to computation of uh, deep learning applications is extremely significant. So, we definitely do need to come up with a way to make them much more energy efficient and faster and cheaper if you want to really keep pushing the limits of AI. We definitely do want to do that. So that, that makes uh, making better hardware essentially imperative. Yeah, no, it makes sense. That's that's crazy. Well, very good. Uh, Murat, where's the best place for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Well, I mean, the paper is definitely uh, a good start. And I think there are some nice news articles that were published by MIT News in particular. That would be, I don't know if you can provide the link, but that would be very nice. Separate from that, I think they should keep an eye out because I'm I'm uh, hoping to commercialize this technology now. I mean, the path forward is is definitely, these, these systems are now ready to get introduced to the real world and, you know, pick up pace beyond the limits of academia. I think they have had, a great time in academia, and now they are mature enough to meet the material world, if you may put it that way. And I'm looking forward to leading an effort in such. So they should keep an eye out for you know the news to come. Hopefully, hopefully good news will, will appear soon. Well, very good. Murat, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and explaining this. It's very technical, but I think you've done a really good job in explaining it. So thank you. Thank you very much for having me again. It was a pleasure. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.